0: Just look, I haven't been here for a little while. Uh, a few things have happened since I've seen you last We, I think we had sold a house. We're in a rental. And my daughter, who's been living in Sydney for two years, the intention was she was going to Sydney for a year to study, then come back. Unfortunately, uh, she started a relationship with the principal's son of the Bible college. And uh, I thought, oh, here we go. And so she's not coming back. Long story short, we've had a bit of a family discussion and the result of the discussion was that we as a family are going to move over to Sydney at the end of the year, so Emily can move in with us and then in February when she's married there's that sense of she's leaving home and we've got permission to hang around. Uh, for about a year or so and we'll try and be at least a few kilometres away from wherever she's living but it'd just be nice as a family to regroup you know her and Tyler can come over for a meal or we can go to their place and so there's quite a few changes but once again thank you for being my my sort of second home church I've uh, thoroughly enjoyed not just the preaching aspect but I've just enjoyed being part of your community of faith and seeing new faces and experiencing God's presence in worship and seeing you guys hang around after the service you may not be aware of this but there's a lot of churches when church is finished you're out yeah straight up it no you guys hang around like you you actually like each other which is uh which is wonderful so first third of my life, if you were to ask me to describe the first third of my life, I would say I was a quitter. I learned at a very early age, uh, there was this thing called quitting. And so my first experience of quitting, and I've shared this before, but if you weren't here, is basically I was six years old, so I started at a fairly early age, and I had my first game of team sport, it was soccer. And this is in Sydney, it's a Saturday morning, we never, you never played sport on Sundays because it was the Lord's Day. And so all sport was on a Saturday morning, it was autumn, and my dad was there, which you might think, well, most fathers would watch their sons play, but... See, at at that stage, dad was unemployed and unemployable because of clinical depression. He was in the ministry for about a year or so, but he had to leave after having a breakdown. So dad's unemployed, he's depressed. I didn't really understand it as a six-year-old. I just thought, Mum's at work and dad's at home. And he didn't say a lot to me. We didn't have a close relationship even then. He was very passive, very silent, disengaged. But the greatest thrill was, wow, dad is about to watch me play my first game of sport. And as often the case, you know, kids sport at the age of five, six, it's basically fun. There's no game plan tactics. The the coach might say, look, you're in defence, you're in the middle, you're, you're sort of in the forward. Hey, but if you kick a goal or you try and kick a goal and it doesn't go in. It's okay if you kick a home goal. It's, look, it's all okay. It's just fun. So we're all chilled. But at the moment the whistle blew, the two teams became one team and they're moving around, kicking me, kicking me. And in a moment, as a six-year-old, I thought, whoa, I, I don't know what to do. And I had this fear of of doing something wrong. And so I remember standing away from the pack and just watching all these boys just kicking to each other and both teams moving around and all of a sudden this soccer ball came towards me. It was just this sense of dread and and I I kicked it and I'm glad I connected but the only problem is the ball went out of play. Now in the mind of a six-year-old I never challenged my little thought of public humiliation, I thought I made an absolute fool of myself, let the team down. It didn't hurt that one of the boys yelled out, why did you kick the ball out? But in a moment, I felt I don't belong and I have made a fool of myself as if I'm the only one in the history of soccer that has ever, ever kicked the ball out. So all of a sudden, I remember the rest, the rest of the game was just terror. Please don't kick to me. And I'm sure they thought, don't kick it to Rob. But anyhow, end of the game, and I'm walking home with Dad. No words of encouragement. No words of, hey, you know, you, how, how did you go? How did you think you went? That was a great kick, yeah, but I kicked it out. Oh, but, Rob, it's just a game, you know. There was, there was silence, disengagement. And the problem is, when you're a child of about five or six, and you experience trauma and your parents don't speak into that trauma, you create a narrative. And my narrative was, I'm a failure and I don't belong. And so to break the silence, I said to dad, I quit, I threw him the towel. No challenge, no, hey, son, son, uh, let's give it a few weeks. Now you've got a good friend, Danny, right? And his name's Danny and you're younger, and he's from England. He, he plays soccer, because everyone from England plays soccer. There was no, uh, hey, why don't we get Danny? And Dad's unemployed, so he's got all the time. After school, let's practice. I'm going to go and buy a soccer because I didn't have one. And every afternoon, we're going to play. We're going to kick. We're going to bring your friends from school. It was no challenge. So I threw in the towel, said I quit. And that was it. I, I didn't show up the following week. And for years and years and years, I never played team sport. I knew I was fast. I had some sporting ability. I loved sport, but I had already started a narrative about my life, that I'm a failure, I'm not good enough, and I quit, and there was no process. And I thought, "That, that was easy. Another six years go by and I'm part of the uh, the local boys' brigade. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen the uniform of boys' brigade, but if you can imagine, you're in Sydney in a suburb similar to Kundula, ba- Balga, sort of, you know, that type of area, and you're walking through the main streets, because we didn't have a car and I sometimes got a lift, but on this occasion, a number of occasions, I didn't get a lift. So you've got the white sailor's cap with boys' brigade, you've got the navy blue uniform that the shorts and the long sleeve shirt with the little, you know, badges. Uh, Walking socks, I I don't know if they've ever actually been in fashion, but anyhow you had blue walking socks and black school shoes. they were actually called Barter Scouts. They actually had a, a footprint of a line. And so when you left footprints, uh, you, you, you had line footprints. And then also there was a compass in the hill. This is before Get Smart. And so it, it was an amazing thing, but a little bit embarrassing walking through the main street of this uh, blue collar worker, low socioeconomic area, and saying, you know, the guys, hello, Sailor. It's like, yeah, that's the first time I heard that. Or is it whatever? But I love Boys Brigade. You know, learning to do knots, playing all sorts of sport, you know, but it wasn't that competitive and going on hikes and camping. And on one particular night, it was like free time. We we're mucking around and this boy, I don't, don't know why, I don't think I provoked him, a year younger than me started uh, picking on me. And I, I, I sort of said something to him and he got his big brother. Now, when you're 12 and a 13-year-old comes, now I'm in, um, I'm in year six, He's in high school. In Sydney, you're in high school. In year seven, we're a little bit more advanced. And so you've got a high school kid saying, hey, what's the deal with picking on my brother? And it was like, I said, I wasn't kicking, picking on your brother, and he pushed me down. And it was just the fight or flight type of thing set in. I'm either going to run away or I'm going to stick up for myself. So I'm on the ground. He's over me. It was just a reflexing. I just kicked him right in the testicles. Now he fell to the ground groaning and I ran inside of the Duneside Baptist Church and uh, I managed to get a lift home. And then for a few days, I had the dread of going back to Boys Brigade because this guy, he, I got him, and he, he's gonna get me back. So what did I do? I talked to mom and dad about it, said oh, I'm quitting. I didn't tell them why because I was embarrassed and ashamed. And I said, I quit. Now, for the first time, there was a mild challenge. Are you sure about this? It was like, yeah, the towel is down. And I said, well, why don't you write a letter to Mrs. Beatson? So don't even have to show up. Write a letter, we'll, we'll post it. So you know, I wrote a letter, basically, dear Mrs. Beatson, thank you for being my captain in Boys Brigade. I'm writing to let you know that I'm no longer going. No explanation. And that was it. And I didn't have to show up. I've never, I've never met the guy since. Um, and so, once again, throwing the towel, and it was like, wow, I, I suddenly realized a lesson. And it's not a good lesson. The reason why a lot of people walk out, quit their job, leave church, leave a relationship, leave a marriage is it, it's really quite easy. You just throw in the towel, you just leave. You just don't show up. You just maybe write a letter. And then today, I mean, it's even more interesting with relationships. I mean, there was a time, I'll just talk to the guys. There was a time, if you thought the girl wasn't the right girl, you would actually go up to her and say, Look, um, you know, I think you're really nice and you're pretty, but, uh, you know, can we just be friends? And okay, you'd have to deal with her crying and, and whatever. But, you know, it was a face to face thing. Uh, today, what do you do? Text. You're dumped. And, and then you might have even put it on social media just letting you know, oh, this girl's a cow or whatever it might be. And, and, and it's, it's just like, but, you know, no confrontation, no, no, no slap in the face, no tears. And, and so, again, it's just we live in a world where just don't show up, just quit, just leave. There's more to quitting than quitting. It, it's more than just throwing in the towel leaving a church leaving a team leaving your job leaving throwing in the towel and the problem with that is two things number one quitting begets quitting see when you quit and you realize "Wow, that was easy and you don't have to confront whatever you had to confront and you do it again and do it again after a while quitting has babies they're called quitting. And so quitting begets quitting begets qu- quitting. And after a while, you, you build a history of quitting. You begin to write a self-narrative. A self-narrative is the story you tell yourself about yourself. And so after a while, I realize I'm telling myself a narrative, not just I, I quit, no, I am a quitter. And that's a whole different ballgame because that's about identity. So if Rob Mason is a quitter, well, that must mean that Rob Mason is a coward. Rob Mason didn't just fail. No, Rob Mason is a failure. And so this whole thing of shame begins to be part of your narrative. You begin to write a shame narrative I'm a quitter, I'm a loser, I don't belong, I'm not good enough, I'm not smart enough, I'm not fast enough, I'm not thin enough, I'm not tall enough, I'm not spiritual enough, I'm not anointed enough. And so my life motto was, when the tough, um, how does it go? When the, when the going gets tough, run. Just run, like Run, Forrest, run. You know, it's like when things start coming your way that's negative, that's threatening, the best thing to do is run. And that damages the soul, that you build this history of quitting. And see, what happened is my perception of life was it's unfair and it's dangerous. And so my highest values in life is safety, protection and comfort. Don't take a risk. If it gets tough, leave, run, throw in the towel. Everything is about I've got to be safe, I've got to look out for myself. I just just didn't realise at the time in those first nearly 20 years of my life, that there's an alternative to quitting. And that's called resilience. And so the question is, how do we build resilience? How do we deal with setbacks and rejection and betrayal? How do we deal with those curveballs that come in life? How do we deal with those negative thoughts that begin to race through our mind that I suck, I'm ugly, I'm fat, I'm a loser, whatever it is. And so one of the things I want to do this morning is to look at a person in the Bible that I think is quite relatable. They're relatable because they didn't have an easy life. And for a few minutes, we're going to look at the life of the Apostle Paul. Because here is a man that for part of his life, he, I don't think he was ever a quitter. He was a very disciplined person. He was a very religious person. And one thing about religion is you always have people who are in and people who are out. You're very clear on the in and the out. Paul, who used to be called Saul, was always in. He was this prodigy child. You could imagine from a very young age, the parents saw something in their son. They got the best mentor, and he began to... Uh, memorise copious amounts of the Old Testament. There were probably times he could memorise Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. I mean, Leviticus. Imagine memorising Leviticus. Not only did he memorise it, he, from his perspective, he lived it. He was you know, a great accountant. He'd dot the I's, he crossed cross the T's, and after a while, he'd realised, I am in, and I'm becoming the best of the best. If you ever watch Top Gun, he is maverick or the Iceman. He is the elite. And so he's living, yes, like all of Jews, living under the Roman Empire, yet there was this sense of... He wasn't a threat to them. In fact, he would probably work in their favour of if there ever was a revolution beginning among the Jewish people, he would stand them out. And of course, there was a little bit of a revolution, a little bit of a spot fire called the Jesus movement. There were people following Jesus. And so Saul's mission in life was to destroy the church. And a lot of you know, in a book called Acts, which is the the history of the first century church, there was this time that Saul was about to, you know he's on his way to a particular place called Damascus to totally destroy, separate families, put people in prison. He's already given permission. He's watched a person called Stephen persecuted. He's on his way to do his job as this uh, first century terrorist, this fanatic, this Jew of Jews, this Hebrew of Hebrews, And he encounters the risen Jesus. He becomes a Christian. And it's from that moment onwards, his life got complicated. It was all very sanitised. It was all very clear. I'm in, they're out. I'm the best of the best. I'm eventually going to be part of the Jewish Supreme Court. That's his life mission. And it was all pretty neat and tidy and then he became a christian and there was resistance you could say initially the resistance was from believers when paul became a christian and he wanted to sort of you know connect with the church it was like we don't trust you we think this is a very clever plot and it wasn't you know it was guys like barnabas after a while realized hey he's the real deal but imagine becoming a Christian and you want to go to the church and tell everyone I know I was a horrible person but you know my life I have seen I have heard the voice of the risen Christ I have been baptized I was blind now I can see it's you know, like I've been stripped legalism has just been stripped off of me and they're going yeah well, we, we just don't we just don't believe it and then as you start reading the letters he starts to write to the church once they realize he is the real deal he had a lot of problems with the church i don't know if you know this but christians can be really nasty sometimes so one area of resistance was from church people but then there was another type of church people they were known as legalistic jewish christians so paul could understand that these guys like him were jews and were into judaism but unlike paul when they became christians it was jesus and judaism They believe that if you're a guy and you become a Christian and yet you're a Gentile, well, you've got to be a Jew before you become a Christian. You've got to be circumcised. I don't care if you're 35. You've got to have it done. (laughs) And so Paul would write to them. He would have uh, resistance from these guys. And it was just like, no. He was so passionate. It's like, no, it's all about Jesus. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It's not Jesus and legalism it's Jesus and so he had resistance from legalistic Jewish Christians and then of course one of the greatest resistance was from his fellow Jews Look, there was a time he was the top gun. Now he's Israel's most wanted. They hated Paul. And so there were times you read about in Acts chapter 14, he'd be in a place called Iconium. And because his life was in danger, he left. But then people from Antioch and Iconium tracked him down to a place called Lystra. And they took him out of town. They got a whole lot of rocks and started stoning him to death. They actually thought he was dead and they left him. So that, that means he, he would have looked like a little bit more of a, a graze or a bruise. That must mean he had open wounds all over his body. See, when you're stoned to death, there, there's no one guy with a boulder, let's just crush his skull. No, let's just do it slowly. Let's hear ribs break and, and you know, let's hear the skull crack and, and whatever. And so as they've seen stoning before and it's like this guy is dead. Some time passed by and just shook off the sand and he could hardly walk. And in fact, if you were to track the the journey of Paul during his missionary journeys, one scholar said it's like tracking a bleeding animal in the snow. Wherever Paul went, he left a trail of blood. He was hated. He was despised. Now, I don't know about you guys as pastors. I've never had the church, maybe they wanted to, but I've never had people throw rocks at me. I've had a few really horrible emails. I've had a couple of really nasty face-to-face conversations. There was a time, and I guess it's my only scar. Uh, I don't know if you'd notice, um, this tooth here is slightly brown. It's because it's dead and it's got a cap on it. And that's because um, there was a time I got a phone call from a guy, a young adult who was, I thought he was intoxicated. And on the phone, he said a few really horrible things, but he said, get to my house now. So I was wise enough to bring a youth pastor with me. So the two of us arrive at a house. And in a moment, my friend, his nose is broken by the guy. So he's, he's on the ground groaning. And then this guy whacks me in the face and I hit the ground. I realised I've got a broken tooth. And I said, and all I've been trained to do in Churches of Christ is reflective listening. <laughs> like, uh, so Mark, you're feeling a bit of rage. Um, do you want to talk about your relationship with your father? That's how I've been trained. This guy was demonised. You might go, how do you know? Well, because I asked the guy what happened. He said, stay there. Now, why I stay there? I didn't leave. I have no idea. But we're both, you know, there's a guy, broken nose, broken tooth, and he comes in with a glass of urine. So he's weeding into this glass. He's cut his hand. His blood's going into the urine. He stirs it up, says, Rob, this is what happened. He drank it, and he said, Satan is king. I'm going, oh, Dr. Farmer, you did not prepare me for this. (laughs) That is my only moment that I've been physically assaulted. Now you might think that's pretty dramatic. Oh, you talk to Christians in places like China and communist countries, and oh, there. I know a girl. I met a girl in India. She was 16. She's covered in cigarette burns from her parents because she became a Christian. She's married. She's studied at YWAM, and her life mission is to plant churches all over India. She's got scars. There are people in prison. Like we never hear it in the newspaper that there were more people um, put to death, executed in prison during the 20th century than the whole history of the church. So my little dead tooth and a few really nasty emails and a few people leaving the church, compared to those guys and compared to the Apostle Paul, I really don't know much about hardship so Paul's had that, but then he also had environmental resistance. He, we read about him experiencing starvation, exhaustion, dehydration, probably uh, tropical diseases, shipwrecked. Uh, he's probably travelled around about twenty thousand uh, kilometres in horrendous terrain. So there are times that you know, at night time when it's dark and it's windy and he's wet, and he is just this man in pain. And then, of course, there's spiritual. Resistance. So it's not just dealing with Jews and Jewish Christians and whatever and the, the elements. He is aware and he writes to the church in Ephesus that our battle is not against flesh and blood. It's against rulers and powers and principalities. In other words, Paul is aware of, the moment I became a follower of Christ, there is this spiritual resistance that I experience 24-7. No wonder, just before his execution in Rome, he writes to Timothy and he says these words, I have fought the good fight, I've finished the race, I've kept the faith. What fight? No, it was a spiritual battle. So that is inspirational. So what do we do with it though? You know, by just reading it, we don't just suddenly become, oh, I just feel like an apostle Paul. The reason why Paul, one of the reasons why Paul had this resilient mindset rather than a quitter's mindset is because he has had a revelation of Jesus who endured the cross. And so I'd say from conversion, he began to align himself with God's authority, God's revelation about himself. And so for us, a one way of building resilience is we start reading the scriptures, not just as history and anthropology and whatever. We start reading, this is what God says about you. This is who you are. This is what you can do. So going from a defeatist mindset where I'm hopeless, I can't cope, what if I fail, what will people think? It's too hard, it's too much, what's the point, whatever, we go to... Oh, so when I'm weak, then I'm strong. If God is for me, who can be against me? I'm more than a conqueror. I'm blessed with every spiritual blessing. I'm seated with Christ in heavenly places. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So what we do is we reset our mind. Now, it's springtime, so a lot of you have reset your reticulation. So you know that your reticulation has been set to go on at two appointed times during the week at appointed times. So originally when you got your retic, you, you had to set it. Then in winter, you just turn it off. And then, you know, springtime, you turn it on. It's all set. So what we do with our mind, we read scriptures. We read scriptures. We read it. We read it. We personalise it. Rob is seated with Christ in heavenly places. Rob is blessed with every spiritual blessing. If God is for Rob, who can be against Rob? And day after day after day, you get the Word in you. We reset, we reprogram our mind. It all begins in our thinking. As a person thinks, so they are. The trouble is, I used to think I'm hopeless, I'm a loser, I'm pathetic, I'm a quitter. But over time, in the last two thirds of my life, I've been learning day by day by day, brick by brick, moment by moment. Rob, it was easy to throw in the towel. Here's another thing. Just keep showing up. Just keep showing up. When you get the emails from people in the church, you know what? Just show up again and preach again and preach again and show up again and meet people again. And yes, when someone says, I wanna meet you, you think, oh no, not one of those meeting. Just show up. Just listen. Don't be defensive. Don't judge. Just keep showing up. I made a commitment to Karen. I, we, we will never give up out of discouragement. Now, there were many opportunities. But we just made a decision, I'm not giving up. So let me just finish with a story. So I've gone to Sydney to surprise my daughter because I know her boyfriend is going to propose. I know where and how. And so we've set it up that he's going to propose to Emily on the lake. He's going to take her to the favourite restaurant where some of their close friends are going to be. And so anyhow, we, we're hiding in the restaurant behind all of her friends. So the guys proposed, yes, amazing. Have this little... Um, uh, it, <laughs> He, it was quite pathetic, really. He, he, he's so romantic. So anyhow, they had this little rug and champagne. She doesn't drink. We had a little wow well sip and whatever, whatever. Oh, can I FaceTime my parents? Oh, what? Before you do, let's go to our favourite restaurant to see your friends and then we'll FaceTime them with all your friends. Okay, okay. So in she goes to the restaurant. Oh, oh wrong. Oh, okay. Yeah, they're all cooking. And then out of nowhere, I just... Stood up and went, Congratulations. She dropped to the ground. She's crying. I'm crying. It was just wonderful. And so we've had a couple of days together. And the plan was, as a family, let's go to Bali. Wonderful. This is going to be incredible. Serene so in Sydney. We're planning on where we might live. But the plan was, and this is incredible. I was going to go to Bali on my own for about four days. I'm I'm going to finish writing my book, Shame Off You. I'm going to surf. I don't have to worry about Karen and the kids waiting for me. Come on, you've been two hours. I'm going to surf. I'm going to read. I've got all these books to read. I'm going to write. It's going to be amazing. And now before the taxi arrived, and it's been years, I had a full-blown panic attack. I've been battling anxiety for over 10 years. I've been off medication for eight months. And I, I, I Karen says, you must be so excited. And I just freaked out. The, I, I can't get on the plane. I can't be alone. And so basically, I went and saw a GP. Uh, I got some tablets to take. You can't just go back on anti-anxiety medication. It takes a few weeks for it to kick on. But again, all of those messages, are. Oh, Rob, you're back, I'm back, those voices are back. This sense of shame, you fool, you can't even get on a plane on your own, go to Bali. Long story short, we stayed a couple of more days, so I had two days alone. I spent most of that time in the hotel room, absolutely petrified of leaving. The week after there, I did a whole weekend down in Busselton Workshops, I preached three times, still freaking out. And so here I am this morning. I'm back on medication. I'm still vulnerable. But God just says, Rob, just keep showing up and let me show you what I can do with a guy who stops throwing in the towel. It's always too soon to quit. God bless you guys.